Hey everyone, it's Krista Bontrager and I'm your tour guide this year as we go through the Bible as part of the Route 66 campaign for Grace Church of Glendora. This is the Points of Interest podcast where we preview this week's reading and get you ready to get into the Word of God. Are you ready? Here we go! Well, we're picking up the story this week in John chapter 16. Jesus is right in the middle of what theologians call the upper room discourse. And this is a long series of teachings in the upper room just before Jesus goes to the cross. We'll finish up this section. We'll finish the book of John. And then we'll be getting into the book of Acts this week on the podcast. As Jesus makes his way to the cross in chapter 18, one thing you're going to notice is how occupied the Jewish leaders are with preserving their cleanliness because they're preparing for the Passover meal. In fact, many of the activities uh, around Jesus' death involve considerations because of the Passover. But the real irony that John's bringing out here is that the religious leaders are actually more concerned about being clean, that they can eat the the type or the shadow, the lamb, rather than concerning themselves and, and discerning that Jesus is the final Passover lamb. John does a very effective job, I think, of, of highlighting this, this great irony or this twist in, in the story. When we get to the resurrection, again, the women are going to figure very prominently in the resurrection stories as they have in the other gospel accounts. But one of my favorite stories in all of scripture is the story of Thomas at the end of chapter 20. And I know that Thomas has a a rather unfortunate nickname, Doubting Thomas. There's many people in the world that God has made that just have a naturally curious and inquisitive nature and that they have a need for evidence and and data in order to support their faith. And Thomas is that kind of a guy. I think of him as being kind of the patron saint to scientists. And he says to the disciples, unless I see the nail marks in in Jesus' hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe it. And so there we see that, you know, the need for evidence isn't just some modern invention of, of the Enlightenment, that even in ancient times, there were certain kinds of people that needed evidence and needed data in order to believe something. And what I love about Jesus' response is that he meets Thomas right where he's at. He gives him the evidence that he needs to believe. And then I love Thomas's response because once he sees the evidence, he sees that it's credible. He does what God has called us to do. And that is he drops his doubt and he believes. He says in verse 28, my Lord and my God, which happens in my opinion to be one of the strongest statements in all of scripture about the deity of Jesus coming from the the mouth of one of his disciples, because Thomas as a good Jew would not walk around calling another human being God unless he was absolutely convinced of its reality. And the evidence that he asked for played a a big role in him coming to that conclusion that Jesus is God. And as a Jew, I mean, one of the great lessons that Jews learned through 
all of their suffering and punishment in captivity is that they would never again make the mistake of worshiping idols. And so for Thomas as a Jew to, to proclaim another human being God just shows the level of conviction that he truly had. And then Jesus praises him. He, he doesn't say to Thomas, you know, you're so foolish. Why can't you just believe? Why do you need evidence that your faith is defective? Jesus meets him right where he's at, gives him the evidence, gives him the data. Thomas drops his, his what I call soft skepticism, and he embraces the reality of the evidence. He embraces the implications of it, that Jesus is God. And then Jesus says to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. In other words, because you got the empirical evidence that you needed, you believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And that's us. We're in that second category. We haven't put our fingers in Jesus's hands. We haven't put our hands in Jesus's side. But Thomas did that on our behalf. And his experience is recorded in scripture that we may believe. And in fact, John reiterates that a couple verses later. It says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ or Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name. So if we want to have life, we, we must believe in the words and deeds of Jesus that they were real. They happened in history and that there were real eyewitnesses that saw them that experienced Jesus in an empirical five sense fashion, just like scientists study today and that those experiences are written down. And so when we say that Christianity is based on experience, we're, we're correct in saying that it's based on the, the five sense experience of the apostles. It We haven't experienced Jesus in the flesh and blood. We haven't touched his side. We haven't seen those nail holes for ourselves, but we have those experiences of the apostles written down that we may believe here in the 21st century then we may have life in his name. And so the faith of Christianity is not a blind faith without evidence. It is replete with evidence and it calls us to test that evidence just as Thomas did. But then when we see the evidence, when we apprehend it, we're also called to drop our soft skepticism and run to Jesus and to believe in him as the creator and savior of the universe. Now we turn to the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is one of my favorite books in the Bible. And it is one of the most important books of the Bible. Because we are now going to see how our grand narrative, that top-level narrative that we've been looking at since the very first week of January, Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent, is now going to go out into all the world. So far, what's been accomplished in the story is that, that God has preserved a people, then he brought about the Messiah through that people, the Messiah preached to the seed the, the, of Abraham and, and some of those seed of Abraham embraced him as the Messiah. Others did not. 
he died, he was buried, he was resurrected, now he's ascended to heaven, and now the message is going to go out to all the world. And the seed of the woman will triumph as it expands in its global scope to reach the ends of the earth. And that is really the story of the book of Acts. Imagine the Bible, if we didn't have the book of Acts, we would end in the Gospel of John. Jesus was dead, he was buried, he was resurrected, and then all of a sudden we picked up in the epistles. Wait a minute, now there's Gentiles, and what's a church, and where'd that come from? The book of Acts is the great bridge that holds the whole New Testament together. If we didn't have this, we wouldn't have the rest of the story of how the gospel went out from the Jews to the Gentiles. And so when Jesus tells the apostles to stay in Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit, and then that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's really like the outline for the book of Acts. It's Luke's way of organizing his content because he's going to tell us how the gospel is going out to all the world. So we might think of how the gospel goes out as sort of like concentric circles on Pentecost, the church is still basically Jews. They're in the upper room. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes. Peter pours out into the street. It's Pentecost. So there are many Jews there from out of town. They've come for the Feast of Pentecost. It's a divine appointment that the Holy Spirit would come on Pentecost. And it helps facilitate the the more rapid spread of the gospel. And so some of these Jews come to faith. Some of these Jews are are living in what's called the diaspora, the scattering of the Jews around the Roman Empire. So they begin to take it back to their home area. And some of these would have been Greek-speaking Jews. And so that's a little bit broadening of this concentric circle, not just Jews in Jerusalem now, but we have some Greek-speaking Jews that are going back to their homeland to bring this gospel message. And then we have this kind of dynamic in the book of Acts of, of a series of crises inside the church, outside the church, and it kind of toggles back and forth between these two. Peter heals the beggar, but then he gets in trouble. And so this is a a crisis that's outside of the church. And then we have a crisis inside of the church with Ananias and Sapphira. And then the apostles are continuing to heal people. This is a sign that the same God who animated the miracles of the prophets and Moses was the same God who animated the miracles of Jesus. And it's the same God that animates the miracles of the apostles. This is to verify that it's all the same God. It's the same message. It's working in human history. And it's a way of, of having all of these events hang together. And so that's the purpose of the miracles here. Then we're confronted with another crisis outside of the church. The apostles are continuing to be persecuted. And now we're going to have in chapter 6 another crisis inside the church. What happens is the church is starting to get filled with Greek-speaking Jews. More and more are coming to faith. And it causes a crisis because already they're starting to be like this ethnic division of Who's more Christian? Is it the Greek-speaking Jews or the Jerusalem Jews? And a little competition going there. Then we, second half of chapter 6, we move to another crisis outside of the church where Stephen is seized and 
put on trial in front of the Sanhedrin and then put to death. The church is then scattered and then we move in chapter 8 to another expansion of that concentric circle. Philip is in Samaria and the Samaritans come to faith. So now we don't have just Jews in Jerusalem or just Greek speaking Jews. Now we have Samaritans. That's another level. And they're kind of this Jewish half breed and, and syncretistic Jews, but with, you know, they have some influence of the ancient Jewish religion, um, but they were inter forced to be intermarried by the Assyrians back in the Old Testament period. So that expands the circle a little bit of the gospel. Then we're going to expand that concentric circle even more later in chapter 8 when Philip talks to the Ethiopian eunuch. Oh, now we have something interesting. A man who is unclean, ceremonially unclean, according to the Old Testament law. In other words, he would not have been able to be a full participating temple worshiping Jew because of being a eunuch. Well, here he's reading the Old Testament. He's obviously has great reverence for the Old Testament. He doesn't completely understand it. Philip explains the gospel to the hymn. He comes to faith and immediately becomes baptized. The purpose of this story is to broaden that concentric circle a little bit more of the gospel because now we have someone who has been disqualified from full worship of the God under the Mosaic law. Yet, under the new covenant, he can be a full participating member of the new covenant community. Then we get to the conversion of Saul in chapter 9. This was a, a crisis outside the church because of Saul's persecutions. But now he's coming into the church and he will become the cornerstone for God's effort to bring the gospel to the Gentiles in a more universal sense. Then we go back to Peter. Peter is the one, remember, that Jesus says has the keys to the kingdom. Well, he's about to turn a big key right here. And that is, he is the critical character that is going to open the door to the Gentiles. And we have this series of visions between Cornelius and, and Peter. And this is what I like to call double vision. God is going to do something unprecedented right now in redemptive history. This is a, a one-time big, huge event, just like the, you know, the cross was a one-time event. The birth of Jesus was a one-time event. This, bringing the gospel to the Gentiles for the initial moment, is a one-time event. When it's a one-time event, there's a lot of signs and wonders that happen because God wants us to know that, that he's at work and, and he's about to do something really big. And so there's these double visions where one vision is confirming another vision in two separate men in two separate times, two separate places. We know God's at work. And then the Gentiles come into the new covenant community as full members, they receive the Holy Spirit, just like the Jews in Jerusalem did back on Pentecost. And I think this even takes Peter a little bit by surprise that this is what happened. Then Peter has to explain his actions in chapter 11 to the church more widely. And there's going to be some controversy that we're going to continue next week there in, as it builds in chapter 15. But we're laying the foundation this week of 
Wow, isn't it interesting that the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles just as it did the Jews? And what does this mean? Do Christians still need to become Jews first in order to be full partners in the gospel and in the new covenant community? What is God doing here? And so there's this, this is a, a time of, of real transition in the church. The Gentile church grows rapidly. A church gets established in Antioch. So now we've got a pretty much fully Gentile church that will figure prominently in the book of Acts as the sending church for Paul and Barnabas. In fact, we're going to end the week there in chapter 13 as the church in Antioch sends out these missionaries and they begin to make their way through the Mediterranean world, preaching the gospel. Now, at this point, Paul's first step is to go to the Jewish synagogue in each city. Notice the pattern. He goes to the Jews first. Why? Well, because they already have the Old Testament. They have a messianic expectation that God will send that seed from the woman to save them. And so it's the natural, easiest starting place where they can have a bridge of communication. So right away in, in Acts 13, Starting in, in uh, verse 5, when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogue. John was with them as their helper. And you'll see throughout their travels, they go to Pisidian Antioch next. And in verse 14, it says, from Perga, they went to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the city, synagogue and sat down. They give a message to the Jews there in the synagogue. And this is going to be Paul's pattern. Is he's going to go to the Jews first. But then as he goes along in his journeys, notice how he begins to shift and go more and more to the Gentiles. In fact, at the end of our reading this week, in chapter 13, verse 46, it says, Paul says, Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles for this is what the Lord has commanded us I made you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth when the Gentiles heard this they were glad and honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed it's a beautiful story we're watching the seed of the woman now it's been passed along through all these generations and now the gospel message is going out, it's bearing fruit, and is going to the ends of the earth. And that is where you and I enter the story. Because we, most of us at Grace Church are Gentiles. And this is the point where we begin to get on board with seeing God's program for including us as full members of his covenant community. We saw little hints of this in the Old Testament with, with Ruth and with Rahab and, and a few others where they would be kind of pulled into the Old Covenant community. But now under the New Covenant, there's there's great broadness to bring us in as Gentiles and we can be full partners. That's really the theme here in the book of Acts is that story of how we got into the story. Where did we come from? And so we're going to begin to understand and appreciate that shift in the story of redemption. 
Acts is a wonderful book. I know you're going to enjoy it. Again, it's one of my favorite books in the Bible. I know I'm saying that a lot. I just love scripture. I hope that's coming through. I hope that you'll be blessed this week as you read through the book of Acts and uh, also finishing up the book of John. And we'll continue our adventure in the book of Acts next week as we continue on down the road in Route 66. We'll see you then. God bless.